episode 24 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And our regular host, Eloise Ross, is in Darwin for what seems like very non-cinematic reasons. So this week, we're joined by audience favourite, Hayley Inch. Oh, I'm very flattered to know I'm an audience favourite. Did you get some favourable tweets or something? <laughs> it was certainly volume. Volume of tweets. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. I'll take that. Um, and this week we're reviewing Julia Dorkno's debut feature film, Raw, Warren Beatty's first film in 15 years, Rules Don't Apply. Um, we'll share our picks from movie and let you know what's going on in Melbourne with our Cultural Capital Film Diary, as well as sharing our top three comic book and graphic novel adaptations. But first, the reason why we're doing that top three, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. This is weird. We've got a sovereign fleet approaching from the rear. Why would they do that? Probably because Rocket stole some of their batteries. Dude! Right. He didn't steal some of those. I don't know why they're after us. What a mystery this is. <laughs> what were you thinking? Dude, they were really easy to steal. That's your defense? Come on! You saw how that high priestess talked down to us. Now, I'm teaching her a lesson. Well, I didn't realize your motivation was altruism. It's really a shame the Sovereign have mistaken your intentions and are trying to kill us. Exactly. I was being sarcastic. Oh, no, you're supposed to use a sarcastic voice. Now I look foolish. Can we put the big ring on hold until after we survive this massive space battle? More incoming. Good. I'm going to kill some guys. The 2014 film Guardians of the Galaxy took a lot of film fans to our surprise. Those who are familiar with the 2008 comic book series as well as film goers used to cookie-cutter takes on Marvel and DC property adaptations. Taking the irreverent humour of Iron Man and dialing it up to 11, Guardians of the Galaxy spent little time dealing with plausible science fiction and a lot of energy on memorable characters, ridiculous situations and its slick AM radio soundtrack. The sequel is set three months after the cliffhanger ending of the first film and concerns the titular misfits, including Vin Diesel's Baby Groot, Bradley Cooper's Rocket and Zoe Saldana's Gamora, struggling to keep their family dynamic while helping Chris Pratt's Peter Quill find his true parentage. This mission happens to take them back to Michael Rooker's Yondu and his overtly evil sister Nebula, played by Karen Gillan, but its new character Ego, played by Kurt Russell, who is responsible for an interplanetary battle that threatens to consume much of the film's $250 million budget. Anders, was Guardians of the Galaxy 2 a case of scale over substance? It was a case of scale over substance for the most part, I found. It's an interesting franchise in many ways. I felt that it felt really like it was expending a lot of energy and effort to make it appear as if these characters were having a good time and that therefore we would have a good time. And up until I think literally um, I wrote in my review the final, the end credits, it doesn't quite succeed. And then the end credits are so fun and so unselfconscious. And I watched them and I thought, where was this vibe for the whole two and a half hours of this movie? Because it was really, yeah, it was kind of lacking. So basically there there's a lot of sort of banter amongst this group of adorable misfits um, as they go around on their space adventures. And it's just, it's a recipe for a good movie, but I don't think the ingredients quite work. A lot of the dialogue's not nearly as snazzy as it thinks it is, I think, is a problem here. So 
uh, one example, one of the characters is they're uh, fighting over who gets to pilot their ship. Uh, Rocket, the sort of wisecracking um, raccoon character, says, I was genetically engineered to fly this spaceship. And Star-Lord, Chris, mm. Chris Pratt, responds with, You're, you, did they genetically engineer you to be a douchebag? <laughs> Lol. And so it's just like that level of banter. It actually felt a bit like they weren't having a good time. For a lot of the movie, it felt as if they kind of hated each other, which was weird. And then it got a bit lighter and and the ingredients fell into place, but I thought it took a very long time to get there. It looks quite beautiful, very beautifully designed, as Marvel movies often are. You know, the planetary design and, like, the various races and stuff is great. I want to give a massive shout-out to Elizabeth Debicki, the Australian actress who plays one of the Sovereign. They're very highly conceited. They're covered in head-to-toe gold and they think very highly of themselves. And there's a lot of quite genuinely funny humour. I laughed out loud at the depiction of these sort of arrogant characters and that that all was played, you know, really well. Um, But the rest of it was a bit of a letdown for me. Mm, Okay. Because I certainly felt in the first film there was a lot of manufactured tension between yeah. like between the characters where they would they would like you were just suggesting be unnecessarily a bit mean and a bit snarky and cynical but it was kind of couched as being part of this like friendly family banter yeah yeah exactly Which and it doesn't just quite yeah, didn't fall didn't gel really i mean and the other thing is the other thing i found really annoying is that you can't have a sincere moment well you can and i'll get to this in a second but for most of the film you can't have a sincere moment sort of a moment that's played straight. Everything's sort of undercut with irony or uh, these characters making wisecracks mm. or jokes or whatever. Um, and the only things that are played straight are this very cliched father-son uh, dynamic that plays out in the film between Star-Lord and Kurt Russell. Ego, Star-Lord and Ego, his dad, played by <laughs> Kurt Russell. And it was quite a cliche. I mean, the most ridiculous moment for me in this sort of whole dynamic came when uh, Ego teaches Star-Lord how to create an energy ball out of energy and this is a new thing that he's learnt and then they throw the energy ball to each other and it's like they're playing baseball and it's not played for laughs, it's played straight in a way that like, if, if it wasn't to do with father-son bonding, this movie would be taking the absolute piss out of that moment. But because it's their central film or whatever, it's played very straight, and I ended up laughing at the movie, not with the movie, laughing at the movie. Mm. So it's this bizarre dynamic between irony and sincerity, and the sincerity is quite pat and not particularly doing anything new for me. Mm, okay. Yeah, and also the soundtrack. I mean, these movies are defined by their soundtracks, and I just found it a bit tiresome. There's a there's a sort of newly minted song for the end credits which features David Hasselhoff, and it's awesome. Loved it. And I wish there was more sort of original music because, you know, they do Fleetwood Mac, they do Cat Stevens, they do sort of all the... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like fairly serviceable. It's like ticking off a list of yeah. 1970s AM radio. Yeah, yeah, which I guess is a whole point... But still, yeah. And then what's annoying is Kurt Russell's character goes into extended sort of digressions of pop culture criticism where he's like, oh, this uh, Aunt Fleetwood Mac amazing lyricist, you know, the, the, this stuff and it gels with this music and it transcends space and time. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, my God, shut up. Anyway, um, as much as we love Fleetwood Mac, and we do, we do. But, uh, and we do, genuinely. I don't know. Not much of it really worked for me. 
Yeah. Mm. Do you think that this is the particular thread out of all of the Marvel movies that is trying really self-consciously to be cool and kind of connect with people who ordinarily might not be interested in these kind of more, far more obscure comics characters? And I find, like, even just comparing, like, uh, the, the first film and what I know about this second film to just the trailer of Taika Waititi's Thor film, which actually seems to be utterly brilliant brimming with enthusiasm and actual genuine fun. Yeah, yeah, what, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think it is. It's like this... You can't quite manufacture fun in this way. They, it tries and it just doesn't work. I think there's too many characters and it's just all... It's a little bit too wacky. The jokes are a little bit too obvious. The bloody Drax character, this sort of hulking um, guy played by Dave Bautista, he responds... Like, whenever someone says a joke, he will laugh very loudly at the joke. And I found it so grating that, like, a character is telling me how to emotionally respond to it to the movie. And, in fact, the final shot, which I won't spoil, but the final shot is, like, this dynamic to, like, the 10th degree. And it actually it really did quite infuriate me. So it's <laughs> quite... It, I don't know. It's kind of patronising in a way, I find, this film. Did you have a favourite of the five post-credit sequences? <laughs> um, oh yes, there's one featuring Elizabeth Debicki dancing, which I quite enjoyed. I think how the Duck might make an appearance. I can't remember. Oh. I, don't, I can't even remember, honestly. <laughs> it's all sort of, yeah, mm, As does happen with a lot of these Marvel adaptations. Yes, exactly. Not giving it a thumbs up right. tonight. From a blockbuster film, which we may not be giving thumbs up to, to a small feature film debut from France. Next up is Raw. debut feature film Raw follows a teenage vegetarian who starts her first day at veterinary school. This is part of her family history. Her whole family has gone to this vet school, including her older sister. Her parents sort of drop her off at the vet school and um, disappear for most of the film. And it slowly transpires that she's got a bit of cannibalism in her. So Haley. Did you find the art house horrors of Raw viscerally confronting? <laughs> I was extremely trepidatious going into this film. Cannibalism exists, it happens all the time, because essentially the monster is us. We don't want to acknowledge it because it's, you know, supposedly the worst that human beings can get to consuming each other even though we're currently all stuck in you know sociological uh systems that do exactly that but anyway oh, um nice <laughs> but um yeah surprisingly i did for the most part really get into raw and very very much enjoy it it's a beautiful thing to look at like the cinematography and mm. the framing and the way this world is put together because you kind of just get put into this almost like hermetically sealed world of this veterinary college which is a very particular environment and it's a very heightened 
violent yeah. environment where the students are reacting to what they have to do to to all of these animals within this career and they kind of process it by you know being really horrible to younger and new students and you know madly having these wild parties and having sex with each other in a way that's very abandoned and i think the way that the director explores this idea of this space being somewhere where her lead character has to deal with her emerging sexuality and dealing with women's bodies is like a real power move. Mm, that's only what I found. I think the attention is being given to the cannibalism, but the main focus of the film is just on bodies and the way that these are used, particularly in the first week of school, which is mainly about hazing rituals and about this desperate need to fit in and be one of the like accepted amongst their peers so the bodies become like a site for pain and for shame and for humiliation and then for amusement and then for pleasure and there's all these different ways and different stories and different kind of small scenes like scene after scene will like look at a body in a different way almost like where she's either trying to fit into clothes that she's never worn before or mm. the nurse is telling her a story about an overweight girl who you know the doctors were kind of laughing because they couldn't find a vein because of you know her body and that sort of thing so this they're just very minor parts of this much bigger story which is about i suppose in the end you know the lengths people go to to be seen as normal or average yeah it's very it's interesting it's sort of like almost this episodic vignette style of storytelling um the more i think about it the more sort of creepy it is it's not as gruesome as i was led to believe no, I think absolutely not. Or as I was expecting but man does a cup capture sort of this sort of unsettling nature of what it means to be sort of abandoned essentially she's it's amazing how like her parents drop her off at this mm. college her older sister was supposed to meet them at the college but mm. she's not there and mum and dad say I'm sure it'll be fine you'll find her we're off by and then like they just leave her there she's yeah. like jumped at this sort of veterinary college mm. out in sort of the woods yeah in, like, it's brutalist architecture rigid. these huge yeah. like oppressive oh it's so it's so creepy yeah. just thinking about it and and there's also the fact that she's she's somewhat of a prodigy and she's actually 16 yes. so she's actually a couple of years younger than yeah, right. all of the other even like new yeah, yeah. students mm. and for her to be thrown into this highly brutal and really sexualized world totally, is totally. like really confronting like i i really love the scene where they're in the cafeteria and she's talking with a bunch of other students and they're talking about monkeys and sex with monkeys and whether yes, animals right. can rape each other and that sort of thing and it's clear that this lead character justine she's never really dealt with other people having differing beliefs to her so she just keeps talking and it's clear what's coming out of her mouth is really horrifying some of the other students at the table who like challenge her and she's just not prepared for it at all so she just keeps going and like building like digging this deeper hole for herself and i find it's it, it the film is a really interesting exploration of trying to find yourself and you know, trying to to put your beliefs out into the world and not really knowing how to deal if they're challenged or if they're deemed unacceptable. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. But and in a way, it makes it sound like we're talking about like a social socio realist film almost. Mm. But then there, I think some of the most striking scenes for me were the really stylized ones. There's a really fascinating scene towards the beginning or sequence of scenes at the beginning where she's having her first night there at the college and then she gets woken up and by these really scary looking guys in um, like veterinary suits with balaclavas on and then led down to this 
they don't know where they're going, but all these students being pulled out with their with pajamas, and they're made to crawl like the animals. Mm. And this that is so incredibly powerful. This thing it reminded me a lot of Salo, just seeing all these kind of heads and these low mm. figures, and you don't know where they're going. And then you know it turns out to not be quite as frightening as it seems like it's going to be. But it's, that was like a wonderful display of just like the new power plays that she's going to be subject to while she's mm. at this school. Yeah, it's also a very interesting film about family and particularly sisterhood because obviously mm. her elder sister is at this school as well, and it's her sister who actually forces her to participate in this hazing ritual where all of the new students are forced to eat a raw rabbit kidney, and Justine doesn't want to do it, and her elder sister Alexa essentially forces the kidney into her mouth and just basically goes, you know, suck it up, everyone has to do it, if you want to fit in, you have to do this. So, and there's all these amazing sequences with the sisters, like, the the scene that really threw me in terms of, like, graphicness was actually the bikini waxing scene, because it's <laughs> yes. so intimate and so horrifying, and, 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 at, one po- and, and at one point during it, Alexa says to Justine, Justine, who's like protesting, Alexis says, beauty is pain. Yeah. And it's this moment where you just kind of like, as as a woman, you're so used to like beating your body into submission, into like acceptable forms. And the acceptable form is so thin and so rigid and with no leeway. And hearing Alexis say beauty is pain, you really just sit back and you kind of contemplate why do we do these things to ourselves? Why is it why is it okay for women to treat themselves like this in order to be seen as acceptable? What is acceptable? Mm. Yeah, yeah, which totally. is interesting because I've been watching a lot of episodes of Daria recently and there was an episode where they basically make that exact same point with a lot of laughs in about 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, there's, no, there's not many laughs in uh, No, there's not many laughs in no. um, there's, uh, there, there, there's, there's some black humour. There's there a is. lot of black humour. Yeah. Um, I think some audience members will find it a lot funnier than others. I think a lot of more audience members will come out of it kind of going like, oh, I have a lot of things to think about mm, and yeah, reflect totally. upon. With no spoilers, as far as we can get away with it, how did you all feel about the ending? Because it was the only part of the film for me that was not satisfying. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, I could see what was going to happen, and it, it was sort of like it was taking it out of. This is what's interesting because it's a bit of a genre mix mishmashy kind of film, mm-hmm. and it sort of resolved it in the way of maybe the genre to the detriment of the rest of the film. Is mm-hmm. how I found it. Yeah, why? What did you think? Yeah, I kind of I ended up thinking a lot about the end of Psycho and how at the end of Psycho, um, Hitchcock has the psychiatrist come yes. in who explains. Yes, it's all explained. Norman Bates. Yep, 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 yep. And I feel like this film kind of does a similar thing, and it's entirely unnecessary. Like you did not need that explanation at all. I feel totally. like it would have been a heck of a lot more powerful if the film had just. I don't know, just just sucked up ended the fact that, that, yeah, ended it in the bed or just ended it in a way where, yeah, maybe some of the audience came out of it going like, but what does it mean? You know, how did this all happen? I feel like what had been set up by the film did not need an explanation at all. Yeah, totally. No, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I would I really wish it had ended a few minutes earlier. But, uh, yeah, overall, just now talking about it now, is I'm remembering just how... 
unsettling and creepy this whole the whole thing is like just the vibe is very off-putting which i kind of love a film that can do that and sustain that that tone for so long off-putting but still completely draw you in and make you like not want to look away like even 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 though the content of so many scenes in this film is really gross and upsetting you don't want to look away you don't want to close your eyes or like watch it between your fingers you want to soak in like every single frame of it yeah we haven't even talked about how wonderful Laurence Millier's um, performances because the, the film oh like the gosh, camera yes. rarely leaves her face or she's mm. usually figuring largely in some scene and to see and her transformation is kind of remarkable like at the beginning she's quite naive and I, I, you know wide-eyed and and a bit uncertain and then just and even without any words at all over the next you know 90 minutes she just transforms so beautifully yeah I, I really enjoyed how with that character they weren't afraid to not only let her be naive but also let her be a little bit insufferable and mm, a little bit yeah. off-putting in terms of how she deals with things and how she particularly deals with other people and I think yeah Merlier just has this beautiful presence to her where you utterly believe her no matter what way the the, the plot ends up taking her into mm, totally yeah were you a fan of the um harpsichord heavy baroque score yes i was going to mention that actually yeah loved loved the score very repetitive and sort of gets under your skin in a major way. ominous yeah 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 and really unusual as well because it made the um the scenes totally. of like mo- like the scenes with the raves music or more modern music to seem that much more jarring yeah mm. yeah yeah everything mm. about this film is jarring in <laughs> yes. the best possible way <laughs> yes uh do we have anything else to say on raw no, one severed thumb up. Yeah, yeah. good call. Many severed thumbs. Many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, multiple. <laughs> Currently screening in art house cinemas from all over the country. <laughs> These guys want to have a face-to-face meeting with me and then uh, be able to say I'm crazy and then I'll have to give up control of uh, TWA to them. It's just... <laughs> I, well, maybe you'd teach him a lesson if you just gave it to him. Then they could sue me for a whole lot of money, and then they may come after my daddy's company, and so I, I really can't afford to let them make me some kind of a psychiatric case. I, I would leave this country and never come back. I'd leave this country and never come back. I'd leave this country and never come back, you know? I'd leave this country and never come back. I'd leave this country and never come back. What am I going to do? They they just have a face-to-face meeting with me and they call me a nut? Well, that's ridiculous. And you have all your own people around you who you know you can trust. Uh, May I give you some advice? Yes. Never trust anybody. (laughs) Not me, not anybody. They're not your mommy or your daddy. The only person you can trust is you. And that was the trailer for Rules Don't Apply. Now, you might think this film is about Howard Hughes, given that the plot is centred around two fictional employees of the famous real-life billionaire, movie maker and eventual recluse, but you would be mistaken. This film, half-Hollywood-style sweeping romance of shooting stars and eventual punctured dreams, half-surprisingly funny and then suddenly melancholic account of a man out of time, is in fact entirely about its director. The last of the true Hollywood giants, writer, director, star, and God knows what other positions he's actually not credited for, (laughs) given his tight control over his projects that took this one a good 40 years to materialise, Warren Beatty. And it's because this is a Warren Beatty film through and through that makes it compelling for self-described Warrenographers like myself. (laughs) That was beautiful. (laughs) 
I've, I've got I've got some so much love for Warren. So just do you want so to much. tell us how you really feel about this film? I feel like this film is a tricky one to talk about, just in terms of. I honestly feel if you are not obsessed with Warren Beatty's filmography, this movie is going to come off badly to you. Because to be honest, it is thematically and plot-wise plot and performance-wise, it is all over the shop. There are a lot of things being thrown at this film seemingly haphazardly, but everything is there for a purpose and everything means something and it all comes back to Beatty himself. This is a strange movie that should have been made 40 years ago, essentially, which is when Beatty first started being interested in doing a Howard Hughes biography like wow. that. That is how long this, this, this kind of idea has obsessed him. And the fact that it's been 16 years since he was even last on screen mm. makes this film such an interesting thing. And it combines so many things about the Beatty figure and the Beatty mystique, the fact that, yeah, it took so long to make, that he had essentially control over everything that was happening. Like, there's all these fabulous stories um, of Beatty making films like Reds and Dick Tracy and Heaven Can Wait, of him just holed up in, in, in an editing room for essentially years cutting the films himself. I was reading wow. an interview on rogerebert.com the other day with the film stars Lily Collins and Eldon Ehrenreich, where they were saying it was amazing as actors working on a Warren Beatty film because he was literally everywhere. And he had say in costuming and set dressing and where these lights were going and how people were saying lines and things like that. And uh, Caleb Deschanel's cinematography, how was that? <gasps> Beautiful. The film really tries to invoke classical Hollywood like it starts in 1956 and then goes to 1964. And it's obviously, it, it's obvious that Beatty's trying to like bring back this spectre of Hollywood as it was when he started in Hollywood because he first went to Hollywood in the late 1950s. And so it's this beautiful Amazing. ghost town that's populated with these beautiful spectral figures he does this thing where he superimposes his his actors into like beautiful stock footage of um los angeles in in the 50s and 60s and it actually works really really well it's a story essentially about a man who has made a lot of mistakes in his life and is fixated with just almost like trying to relive them over and over again and trying to change them and trying to end up with some kind of different outcome but that's not what ends up happening and it's of a man out of time out of step he's evolved beyond the times and the times may not necessarily need him anymore considering how long a warren Beatty film takes to make and he is now 80 years old this will most likely be his swan song and i feel like this film, like so many other Beatty movies, they really benefit from age. I think a lot of people who saw this movie when it came out in the US last year just didn't understand it, or it was the type of movie that the Times weren't ready for. Like, it came out in November last year when, you know, everyone was just screaming hysterically about politics, you know. No one wanted a movie that was so intent on looking back at the yeah, past yeah, yeah. And, and looking back at how yeah. things might have gone wrong. And I think people saw it as silly or indulgent. Like, there's a lot of reviews floating around saying that this film is a disaster and it's Warren Beatty's vanity piece and it's unwatchable and blah, blah, blah. 
But I feel like, yeah, in the context of his career, I feel like give this film five, ten years, come back and revisit it, and I think it will all of a sudden feel very profound and melancholy and this this strange cap on, on, on top of what has been a really extraordinary career that no one else has really been able to replicate. I know. They're talking raccoons. That's their time now. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I, let's go back. I don't want the talking raccoons. <laughs> um, if you are interested in going back and looking at one of 30 different films that are available to you any given month, you could try Mubi as a curated online cinema outlet. In the current slate of what's on Mubi at the moment... Anders, was there anything that stood out to you? Well, I like the idea of the idea of a lake, which is the name of a Swiss film directed by Milagros Mumentala, um, and it follows a photographer who's apparently in an emotionally fragile phase, and she begins putting together a book of personal poems and photographs, um, and I think it's set around um, this beautiful, stunning-looking lake, um, it's the other thing I would say that's in its favour is it's 82 minutes. I'm currently in a shorter film phase, so that's going to be next on my watch list on Mubi. Uh, so, so you're not going to watch all of the Love Diaz films that are no. currently available? <laughs> Just let them... Uh, I think I, did, I have, like, long... I don't know, I do struggle with a lengthy movie at home. Mm. Yeah, so that's what I'm into. What are you into, Hayley? <gasps> well, I watched recently a very intriguing documentary called, and apologies to our Spanish-speaking listeners, El Viaje del Accordeon, or The Journey of the Accordion, which is directed by Andrew Tucker and Ray Sagbini, and it's a Colombian film about a accordion ensemble led by Manuel Vega, and they play villanato music, which is generally an accordion, a guitar and some kind of percussion instrument. And the accordion has a long and varied history in Colombian music. Um, and what happens is the ensemble is actually invited to come play in Germany at the hometown of the German man who invented the accordion. Oh. And they are invited to go and play with that town's accordion orchestra. It's a thing. <laughs> I was delighted. And it's this really kind of beautiful, gentle story about the, the, the evolution of this particular instrument and how it came to Colombia and how these, these Colombian musicians are bringing the revitalised accordion back mm. to its home cool. its home country, essentially. I, I do like a bit of accordion on screen. Mm -hmm. Do you remember Holly Motors has that amazing interlude where Daniel Levant comes and he's like playing accordion in a church <laughs> and it's like intermission and he's like screaming out nonsensically. It's amazing. <laughs> there is definitely not enough accordions in cinema and this will fill your need for it. Nice. And, and thank you for making the first mention of Holy Motors on Cultural Capital. It's, it's taken us 24 episodes to get to Holy Motors. Yeah, oh. compared to about 18 references to Night of the Hunter. So. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a bit of give and take. Um, <laughs> one of the greatest films of the past five years. Years, I would say. I, I would can't believe it's taken second, us that Yes, but nice one. Um, speaking of short films that you can actually kind of snack on, in a way, my pick is... Um, some cinematic snacking. <laughs> my pick is uh, Rouge, which is an hour-long movie released oh. in 2015, directed by Antoine Baraud, and it concerns an artist called Bertrand Bonello. Well, I don't know why I make that double L into a Spanish thing. Bertrand Bonello, who is seeking to um, put together an exhibition of art that explores the monstrous and the hideous. Oh. 
Um, so as such, there's a lot of uh, people looking at works of art in beautiful Parisian galleries and talking about them and analysing them and then talking, reflecting on their own bourgeois lifestyles. So I love this kind of film. <laughs> I really do. It kind of just subtly creates this massive gulf between these two um, uh, subjects. There's these vacuous fresh art curators who sit down in cafes and talk about their art and, or the art that they're looking at. And sometimes they go back to these galleries and look at photos or modern sculptures, but usually it's oil paintings. And they make statements like, I don't know if I'm interested in the social monster or the sacred monster and things like that. So if you're kind of wanting to go to Paris and go around um, galleries with these sorts of people, then this is probably worth checking out. Cool. I will. Thank you. And um, if you're, any of our listeners are interested in checking out anything on Mubi, you can go to mubi.com slash cultural capital and get a month's free trial. And now to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. At Acme, Certain Women, Kelly Reichardt's America is still playing a selection of her films until May 9th. On April 28th, also at Acme, actress Sarah Snook will be talking about her new short film and her many current projects. The Spanish Film Festival is still rolling on in various palace cinemas around Melbourne until its closing night of the Astor on May 7th. Other Astor highlights over the next fortnight include an obscure couple of films called The Godfather and Godfather 2, which are running over the next two Friday nights and a double bill of the recently released Beauty and the Beast and Into the Woods on Sunday, April 30th. The organisers of the Sham Syrian Film Festival are keen to let viewers know that their country and culture isn't defined by a very long and complex war, and they'll be showcasing other parts of Syrian culture. Sham is running uh, at White Central on May 1st to 3rd. And finally, Melbourne Cinematheque is finishing their Coen Brothers season with a rare screening of Blood Simple and Barton Fink on April 26th, and on May the 3rd, they're showcasing the work of the overlooked 1920s silent cinema icon Harold Lloyd. And finally, becoming to our top three comic book and graphic novel adaptations. And Anders, I'm very keen to hear what has stuck with you over your years of cinema viewing. So my, this is an interesting theme and no shortage of material. My third favorite comic book adaptation is Dread, Pete Travis's 2012 oh. film, which is a deeply unpleasant portrait of American fascism that I think is ripe for a rewatch in our current vaguely dystopian times. It's ridiculously violent, visually stunning, and has some nasty things to say about the United States of America. So I totally recommend watching it. I feel like that we should also give some uh, kudos to Carl Urban and how extraordinarily and expressive he is with the bottom half of his face. I know, so, I know. <laughs> he makes this movie. And Lena Haiti from Game of Thrones, she's pretty good too. Oh, wow, um, yeah. It's like the villain. It's a very nasty film though. Like it's... It, you don't feel good watching it, but uh, it's I've been really fascinated well to see how many times that film has been mentioned in the last six to nine months as, as being re, like re understood because it got pretty crap reviews on release and it was overlooked quite a lot. I feel possibly because of this you know relentless violence, but yeah. now the times seem to have come around to it. Yes, which is uh, says something more about the times than the movie. But, um, anyway, yes, Haley, what's your number three? My number three is now. 
Generally, I think when we talk about comic book and graphic novel adaptations, a Marjan Satrapi film is generally brought up. I'm about to bring up the one that is not mentioned, <laughs> basically, ever. I'm talking about Chicken with Plums, which was directed by oh, Marjan yeah. Satrapi and Vincent Paranold in 2011, and it was adapted from Satrapi's graphic novel about an Iranian violinist in the 1950s whose favourite violin is broken and he cannot find another violin from which he can express all of the multitude of feelings inside himself so he decides to go and lie down in bed and die <laughs> it sounds very melodramatic it's actually a really funny movie it's it's very laugh out loud uh, the violinist is played by Matha Almerich and he does this quite extraordinary performance kind of bouncing between melodrama and humour uh, there's some wonderful supporting turns from actresses like Golshifta Faharani and Maria de Medros and the film really beautifully combines animation and live action in ways that you kind of don't expect like you'll be watching a frame and you'll realize belatedly oh half of this is actually animated or animated things have kind of snuck into mm, frame or all of a sudden a character will begin reminiscing and you'll be thrown into something that that is animated which is which is quite quite glorious and if anything this film should be seen for the sequence where Isabella Rossellini savagely hacks apart a watermelon it's quite extraordinary <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is a feature-length film. That is a feature-length right, film, okay. yes. Nice one. Um, my number three um, kind of ties in with yours, I suppose, Anders, which um, is V for Vendetta. And the further away oh, we yes. get from this 2006 film, the kind of crazier it seems that it was ever made. V for Vendetta is an adaptation of Alan Moore's graphic novels, which were published in the late 1980s and depicted a dystopian near future in which a neo-fascist party called Northfire is ruling the UK as a police state and all opponents are sent to concentration camps. The protagonist is a man called V, who's played by Hugo Weaving, um, who wears a Guy Fawkes mask and builds together an elaborate and highly theatrical resistance movement that's um, driven by a love of democracy and inspires a young woman called Evie, played by Natalie Portman, while the eternally underappreciated Stephen Ray plays a detective who was trying to stop them. So um, the Wachowski siblings adapted this, uh, and it's a really strange, bizarre film. I'm imagining you guys have both seen it. Yeah, not for a while, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it for a while, and I must admit I wasn't a fan of it. Mm. when it first came out so I actually would be intrigued to go back and rewatch it yeah it's interesting because it's kind of been taken up as this kind of far left manifesto which it really isn't if you go and watch it the most striking thing in it is Hugo Weaving's bizarre performance as this kind of <laughs> strangely theatrical Victorian dandy and also bloodthirsty revolutionary does he have that amazing um, monologue this which is, is from, all the, yeah. <laughs> alliteration V word alliteration yeah, just, there's all this strange stuff uh, in it as well that you kind of forget when you think oh it's, you know, it's also with Occupy movements just... the Wachowskis are so out there like you watch their movies and you're like how are these yeah mo how do these movies get made in the mainstream Hollywood system mm, and this, no this is a supreme example I think yeah yeah. I think I invented the word vaudevillain to describe Hugo Levy I'm not sure someone else has probably <laughs> used that but I thought that was just kind of depicted him quite well so yeah I would definitely uh, revisit that particularly around this time Cool. And you're number two. So my number two, I believe, is someone else's number one, so I'm not going to talk much about <laughs> it, but it is Captain America Civil War from last year. Is this mm. someone else's? No, it is No, not. okay, oh. let me re-say that then. Um, okay, my number two is last year's Captain America Civil War, directed by the Rousseau brothers. My main criteria for a good comic book movie is that it's entertaining, and I think Civil War 
really hits that note in a way that no other sort of Avengers-y or Marvel movies have with Wine Clear Exception, which is my number one for me. Um, it has a cracking pace, um, very attractive acting, and it doesn't require you to read 50 volumes of comic books to understand what's happening. Mm. And I think this is a key part of what makes it so successful because instead, as of as film watchers, I feel like I've now... Like, this movie is designed for people who have been watching Marvel movies since Iron Man and have absorbed all of the, you know, the lore and the whatnot through the films and not through this extended universe of a thousand other things. So it's really quite an interesting work in that it harks back to all of these various franchise films that I've... that. If you're watching it, you've already seen. So you've already done that hard work in a way that other films that rely on you having read the comics or whatever don't. So it, it gave me the sense that I was a I was a comic book geek who like understood what was going on. Mm, and I right. felt a huge <laughs> sense of accomplishment in myself and pride <laughs> in myself for following the film. And, and so that's what made it my number two. I mean, it's... It's, it's a pretty low bar. It's I know, I know. I'm really... It sounds like I'm damning it with very faint praise. But I think I, I think it, it's it's fun. It's very well made. And it features Ant-Man and the new Spider-Man. New Spider-Man, who was funny too. So, Tom Holland. Yeah, Tom Holland. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just think it ticks a lot of boxes. Mm. Well, that's interesting because my number two is going to have us covering the complete Captain American canon. Oh, yes, there we go. Because, okay. because I'm cheating. I'm cheating and I'm putting in both Captain America the First Avenger and Captain America the Winter Soldier yeah. together okay. because I feel like they do really need to be considered together and Civil War is not canon for my purposes. <laughs> okay. It is kind of more of an Avengers movie, really. It is kind of. Like, I got... I actually got very mad when I discovered who they were all cramming into Civil War because I came out of Captain America the Winter Soldier going this is the greatest Marvel movie that's ever been made and nothing will top it and I still very very much feel that Mm. we may have an argument on our hands but it's a very good movie it's a very good movie yeah Yeah. I feel like Winter Soldier in particular is kind of the only Marvel movie that I feel carries heavy social uh, socio-political weight to it yep. and watching it now particularly after the past couple of years of political worldwide shenanigans the feeling of it is all of a sudden very prescient mm. the reason why i love these two films is obviously because i love captain america and chris evans and i feel like there is such such heart to these particular films that sometimes don't occur in others and they don't even really occur in the Avengers movies either. I feel like that Joss Whedon has, he fundamentally understand, misunderstands Steve Rogers as a character and he always seems slightly off in the yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Whereas the, the Captain America films themselves really, really love getting to grips with this character who's essentially just, he's just so good and he will always do the right thing, even if the right thing is in, is uncomfortable for the uh, government associations that he works with, for the government themselves, for opposing governments, for even his friends who he loves and trusts. He yeah. will always do the right thing and he will always stand by you 
even if it turns out that you were kidnapped by the Russians and you have amnesia and you're trying to kill all of his other friends, he will lay it down, he will lay it down <laughs> for you. And I don't know, there's something about these films that really brings out something elemental in me. The fandom around these movies are just so gorgeous and there's so much beautiful art and fiction that's being built around um, Captain America and particularly his relationship with Bucky Barnes, who's played by Sebastian Stan. Oh my God, he's so films. hot. He's so amazing and I still don't understand how like after Winter Soldier people weren't like beating down his agent's door going we need this guy I'm assuming he had a bad agent but I think he might have gotten a better one because all of his new projects coming up actually look really good I'm really excited for the Tonya Harding movie he's in oh my god anyway digressions digressions essentially like what, what I want from a comic book movie I think is I want to see someone who is superhuman but at their heart is so intrinsically human and just feels a lot and loves a lot and cares a lot Mm. and I feel like Steve Rogers is that character he's Mm. the one who's always going to be coming out to bat for you and I think the first one too has this really nice (gasps) self-reflexive nature to Mm. it about like what are superheroes what Mm. what role do they play in popular culture and what Mm. role does popular culture play in American society and I you know through the like the museum and all Mm. that kind of stuff I really liked it was really sort of unashamed sincere celebration of Mm. the what pop culture can aspire to be yeah that the, film. these films are just so beautifully sincere yeah, in no, a way I that i think a lot of the other marvel movies are I lacking i agree yeah mm. yeah especially winter soldier i thought and plus the symbolism of using a shield as a weapon beautiful <gasps> love it yeah love it right on board with that oh yeah uh, that's that is that's very nice <laughs> <laughs> um, so my number two uh is um scott pilgrim versus the world which is a film i found very annoying when i first saw it i was down on it i thought michael Cera was really unlikable and unrelatable and didn't really do that much that was interesting the girl that he was kind of coveting in that movie Ramona V Flowers was similarly difficult to get on board with but then the, the more I thought about it the more I read about it and then when I rewatched it I really changed changed my mind because first of all actually the poster came out and I was like I also own a Fire Glow Rickenbacker base in 4001 and he isn't even plugging it in and he's not even playing like the technique in that poster was just shocking so I automatically had a bit of an aversion to it but I loved Edgar Wright's previous stuff as most people seem to Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz both really good and then when I saw this film again after reading a few more reviews I realised that I'd missed the sheer innovation that was on, on display in this film I mean I don't think anybody has tried to you know, integrate computer games and movies and comic books with this much like boldness mm. the comic books are written by a Canadian guy called Brian Lee O'Malley um, and Scott Pilgrim is a 23-year-old slacker who falls in love with this delivery girl, Ramona V. Flowers, and to be able to be considered to be able to go on a date with her, he has to defeat her seven evil exes in a series of increasingly escalating and implausible set pieces. And so um, Wright kind of stages these set pieces in this really, really imaginative way where Scott Pilgrim will be jumping up into the air to you know go to be up, level up and to get points and all this sort of stuff and then get a bonus life and these sorts of similar computer game um, iconography. And it's just it's got this great energy to it. And the soundtrack is really, really good. And it's just got a sort of lightness of touch to it that I thought, I think a lot of people overlooked at the time because it didn't do well at the box office. It got really middling reviews. And it was a real surprise because everyone was expecting such greatness from Edgar Wright again. And I think in his next movie, Baby Driver, I don't know if either of you have seen the trailer for this. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, I think this, this time he's not going to have any of that sort of doubt. <laughs> um, so he's going moving from Michael Cera's baby face to the baby face of Ansel Elgort. Ansel L. 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 It's, a, it's a hard L. name to say that one. Yeah. There's a lot of like young 
male actors coming up now. Yeah, who, it's, who, it's not Alden Ehrenreich. Okay, yeah, it's not Alden Ehrenreich. <laughs> yeah, but clearly these young ones don't have to change their names to fit into a marquee anymore. Mm, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so if you are, if that um, little rant just then does pique your interest, uh, Scott Pilgrim is playing this Wednesday on a double bill with more rats at oh. the Astor. So Hello. Perhaps check that out if you're into it. Well, speaking of Edgar Wright, my favourite comic book movie is Ant-Man, <laughs> a movie which he was controversially uh, the, the, the boot from. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I'll get to in a second, yeah. I think the fact that he was booted off this actually makes for a better film. So, it, I know. Oh, controversy! Well, I know, and the reason why, I'll state my case, there's all the self-referential stuff and the wonderfully sort of zany set pieces particularly I'm thinking there's one amazing fight scene so it, st- it stars Paul Rudd and his special ability is that he can turn ant size and the film has a lot of fun with this and one particular sequence which is classic Edgar Wright is this floating handbag and he has this fight within it as in ant size in this handbag as it's like falling to the ground and it's just like it's amazing seeing the him play with scale and that kind of film play with that kind of scale but it also has i mean (laughs) this is just my suppositions here but i think it also has this heart and emotion and sort of mainstreaming that's actually rescued it from falling down an egg or right abyss and turn it into this really quite interesting and affectionate and warm-hearted Film. I think a lot of that's to do with Paul Rudd, who's very charismatic. He's aging like a fine wine, is Paul Rudd, mm, and he's so, so he's so great in in this role. Uh, I, I did mention this before, but I kind of wish he was playing Star Lord in Ga- Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I think he does that sort of slightly cocky. He's cocky, but he's way more lovable than Chris Pratt, in my opinion. Mm. Great performances. Evangeline Lilly, Michael Douglas, and then Corey Stoll, who's a great actor and I hope gets more work beyond House of Cards. Mm. He plays sort of the evil evil supervillain of the movie. What I like about it is it's confined to like this one space. It's confined. It's a San Francisco film. It was made in this weird period of Hollywood filmmaking a couple of years ago where every single movie was set in San Francisco, mm. I feel. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, it's shot in and around San Francisco you're not running all over the world you're not going for the galaxy you're in one place and within san francisco you're in this lab scientific tech company it's it's not disorienting it's creative it's zany it's got a lot of heart and it's it it inspired me to read the comics which no other comic marvel movie has done so i'm now steeped in (laughs) ant-man i'm going to have a baby right now it's an adam's Oh, Wednesday's at that very special age when a girl has only one thing on her mind. Boys. Homicide. Why are you dressed like somebody died? Wait. Okay. Number one. Oh my goodness, I cannot believe I have the chance to talk about the greatest comedy ever made right now. Howard the Duck. No, not (laughs) Howard the Duck. Adam's Family Values. Oh, yes. wow, that's good. good. So, of course, the, the, the thread through here is, of course, the Adam's Family movies made in the early 90s was based on the 1960s television series, which in turn were based on Charles Adams's New Yorker cartoons. Both of the first Adam's Family movies are fabulous. I, I, I don't mean to say that the first film is, is not also amazing, but Adam's Family Values just ramps 
everything up into this gorgeous, perfect adaptation of a 60s television show you could ever hope for. It's filled with fantastic performances, Angelica Houston, Raul Julia, and uh, Christopher Lloyd, Christina Ricci, and of course, Joan Cusack, who is the villain of the piece, this black widow gold digger who marries Uncle Fester and then attempts to murder him numerous times. <laughs> and I, I'm deadly serious about this. She should have won an Oscar because <laughs> the, the, the dialogue from this film is so delicious. It's just one joke after another. There is nothing in this movie that falls flat and I have watched it hundreds of times so you know I'm telling the <laughs> truth. And these lines are beautiful and amazing as they are said by people like Angelica Houston and Christina Ricci. But when they come out of the mouth of Joan Cusack, they just attain art. They really do. Once you've seen Joan Cusack sarcastically yell, Malibu Barbie, you're just like, why does anyone else bother acting? Ever. Yeah, so, cool. yeah, so, so this this is really gorgeous. The, the, the plot of the film is that uh, Gomez and Morticia have had a new child called Pubert. Uh, <laughs> And Wednesday and Pugsley are very unhappy about the appearance of this new child. There are all these amazing sequences that obviously hark back to the fact that these these characters have all been taken from comics because they attempt to kill the child in a variety of <laughs> highly disturbing ways if they were not enormously cartoonish as they were going about it. Like they they set up a mock French revolutionary trial and attempt to, attempt to guillotine the baby. They drop the baby and a cannonball from the top story of their house to see which will bounce first, that sort of thing. The suggestion of Joan Cusack, who by who at the start of the film is the nanny who has been hired to look after the children. And the 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 culminating set piece of this movie. It's the scene where Wednesday Pugsley, their newfound very Jewish friend Joe Glicker, and all the other outcasts of the school camp ruin a Thanksgiving giving themed play and they basically destroy it while also reminding all of these white kids and their very white parents that they're all on stolen land <laughs> and if the Native Americans could get away with it they'd scalp all of them. It really is an extraordinary film for a studio release. Yeah it sounds crazy. Um, There's so many is, interesting things. It is bonkers <laughs> and everything works. Everything is just gorgeous and it all just comes together into this amazing thing where you're just kind of like, I can't believe this director then went off and did Wild Wild West. Sorry, Barry oh. felt mm. <laughs> He peaked early. But it's, it's, it's gorgeous. And if you've only ever watched the first one or if you haven't watched them for years, I fully recommend going back to them. They fully stand up. Cool. As does, I think, my number one, which is Daniel Close Ghost World. So anyone has seen um, the, a trailer for the new movie called Wilson, starring um, Woody Harrelson, will notice that Daniel Close is still obsessed with miscreants and people are experiencing profound personal failure and dissatisfaction with their lives. But I still think that it's going to be hard to top this as his crowning achievement. So Ghost World um, focuses on the lives of two best friends, Enid, played by Thora Birch, and Rebecca, by Scarlett Johansson, in her first major role. But pretty much stealing the whole movie is Steve Buscemi's blues and jazz aficionado um, and sad sack, Seymour. Um, so the, the film is about this friendship that is struck up between Enid and Seymour, first about music and then about uh, they're both their kind of black blackly comic takes on life 
And the film explores Ileana Douglas's uh, <laughs> excellent and hilarious um, art teacher and her influence on Eden's life as well and the way she sees art. And so the film kind of gets obsessed with uh, adolescence and authenticity and misanthropy and it does it in this really interesting and entertaining way which is partly really funny and also has a lot of time for poignance. Um, they are closed and uh, adapted his own graphic novel with the help from director Terry Zwigoff and they both earned a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar nomination which is beaten by A Beautiful Mind which in its own way is kind of the sort of poetry that I imagine fits right into the world of Ghost World. Hmm. <laughs> are you guys a fan of that film? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I always think back to, I feel like Steve Buscemi's performance in that film is one of like the most profoundly like simultaneously beautiful and so immensely sad things I've ever seen. I, I always think of him when I think of that movie. Mm, yeah, same. I've never seen it. Well, I don't know. You've got to do it. Put it on the list. list. It's on the list. Well, kind of like Psycho and like Raw, I found that the worst bit of that film is the final scene, which kind of undercuts a lot of what it was doing in the first place. I don't think it needed it, but still, I still think it's a fantastic Mm. adaptation. So just before we go, we're going to let you know about a um, podcast that Hayley and I have coming soon. We do! Which focuses on the forthcoming TV series Twin Peaks The Return. And we're going to be recapping and analysing each episode... Which is each of which is directed by David Lynch, and I think is going to comprise about one third of his entire lifetime output, given that it's about eighteen hours of pretty much. Yeah, Lynch. it's 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 pure. Wow. It, it's like pure injection of Lynch for yeah. eighteen weeks. It's very exciting. Another insider friend who's seen it, and of course won't spoil anything, but did no. say you will be in heaven, Andy. And I don't have every reason to believe him. So you probably already know how we feel about uh, Twin Peaks, but if you want to uh, hear the opinions of other experts then you can, um, we're going to have a different expert on each uh, each week. And the occasional interview with the occasional cast member, I'm not going to put any spoilers here though, you can track us down uh, by Googling Twin Peaks The Return podcast in SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook and Twitter. Hayley, you've been experiencing Twin Peaks for the first time. I have been. So our How's cl- that going? It's great. So our clever hook for the podcast is that Andy has, of course, watched Twin Peaks numerous times. Lynch obsessive. Lynch yep. obsessive, long-term fan, that sort of thing. I'm in the middle right now of my first watching of the original series ever, and it's wow. extremely exciting. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing, that. Cool. Well, we'll <laughs> listen out. When's your first episode? Is it the first got, week? Yes, we'll be coming out the day after, I think, or mm. very shortly after the very first episode cool. airs. With an interview with a key cast member, then you're going to have to tune in to find out. <laughs> Andy is beside himself about I am it. It's so great. nervous about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 24 of Cultural Capital. If you'd like to rate us and review us on iTunes, like some people have. <gasps> yes, then, thank you. Everyone who's given us... Positive ratings. Which is everyone who's reviewed us. Which is everyone who's reviewed us. Oh, that's us. very yeah. nice. It's a small nice. sample size, but... Yes. Oh, but positive. But positive. Yeah. Universally. Oh, yeah. put that on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you'd like to um, leave us messages on iTunes, we'd be grateful. You can also follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod, and you can find me at Andy Ricky. You can find me at Anders Furs. And you can find me at Haley underscore Sass. Mm, you're all about it. You know it. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>